good to be here again today. And I understand you guys are going through your own time of transition. And I know a little bit about that because last year when my church was going through, our senior pastor was retiring, and I kind of decided I'd been there for 20 years, so it was time for me to move on as well. And it was kind of a frightening time, not frightening, but unnerving time for me, for uh, our senior pastor, for the church. It was all good. Like, there were no hard feelings and everything was, everybody was on good terms with each other, but it was still a difficult time. So I'll certainly keep you guys in prayer as you go through this time of transition for you guys. So let's pray today as we get into God's word. God, we thank you um, for your grace and your mercy. We remember the times that you've come through for us when we felt your presence, when we felt joy and peace. Uh, maybe today and recently, maybe there have been times when things haven't been so good for us. We did not feel good and we felt very distant from you whether that was something of our own doing or just something that happened in life, Lord, um, we acknowledge that there are those times and those moments. And so wherever people are at today, I pray that you'd minister to them and that they would find hope and encouragement, even if it's in being honest about their troubles, that they would find relief in that as well. And so we just offer this time up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think music was very important important to me until I was in middle school. Up until then, music had been something in the background, something I hadn't really chosen. Like if I was on the bus, they played the radio. When my dad was working on one of his numerous projects around the house, he would play the radio. So I heard some songs, and I knew for the most part what was sort of on the radio and popular in those days. But I had never chosen it before. And that changed when I got into middle school. Then I joined one of those um, music clubs, you know, where you got like 12 CDs for the price of one. They don't have those anymore because almost nobody buys CDs. Um, but I joined some of those, and my early sort of purchases were, I don't know, artists like Brian Adams and Wilson Phillips, very like pop, soft rock at most. But that shifted when I got to eighth grade because eighth grade was a tough year for me. See, I hit puberty before all the other guys in my class, so my voice went deep, like what it is now. And, you know, of course, me being different than all my other peers. They were very acceptive, accepting and encouraging. No, of course they weren't. It's middle school. Middle school's the worst. And so everybody just kind of picked on me for that. And I already had all this angst about who I was anyway, just the normal stuff that we go through. So yeah, that was kind of a dark year and the, the sort of pop harmonies of Wilson Phillips wasn't cutting it for me anymore. And so I started getting into like the alternative rock scene. Like if you know the band Pearl Jam, I'm not sure how many Pearl Jam fans we got out there, but um, 90s rock was like just all these alternative acts. And they weren't singing love songs primarily. They were, very, they were very angsty songs about all these troubles that they were going through. But those resonated with me. That was how I was feeling. At the same time, our church hired a new pastor. He was like 30 years old, maybe even younger than that. And he, was our, he was the pastor. He wasn't the youth pastor. And he took an interest in my brother. Me, my brother was three years older, in a good way. Um, he took us to play basketball on snow days and stuff like that. But he didn't like the music that we listened to. He believed that garbage in equals garbage out. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression before. So in other words, if you listen to things that are depressing or angry, you're going to be depressed and angry. That was his point. And, you know, there was an extent to which I wasn't completely comfortable with the musical choices I had made. Like, I, I wanted to listen to Christian music. But when I listened to like Stephen Curtis Chapman or even some of the sort of rock acts out of the time like DC Talk and Audio Adrenaline, 
I don't know, like it just it didn't resonate. And you could say some of it was the style. They just tended not to be, you know, Christian music tends to be like four, five, ten years behind like where popular music's at. Just seems to be the way that goes. But it wasn't just the musical style. It was, there was something about the music itself. They were, they were too happy. Um, and that happiness sometimes was oppressive to me. I didn't feel like there was any room for me in those songs, even though they were meant to be positive and encouraging. And if you listen to any creative Christian radio station, what are their slogans? Like, safe for the whole family. Okay, I understand. That's good. Positive and encouraging is one of the local radio stations. Which, again, there's nothing wrong with being positive and encouraging. But there are moments when our, in our lives where that is not going to resonate with us. And even when Christian songs did bring up, like, heartache and sorrows and problems, I felt like they resolved too quickly. Which, you know, it's kind of like the structure of a song, right? You got three and a half minutes or four minutes. And usually things wind down in that time. But that doesn't really feel like reality. And I'm sure there were some Christian artists out there who were maybe being, you know, kind of going towards the dark side a little bit more, who were talking about their sorrows and being really honest about those things. But it wasn't what I was finding. And so I couldn't, couldn't just get into it. I couldn't gravitate towards it. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about today, because this has been a criticism of Christian music over the years. It's not just been made by me. Other people have pointed this out too, but although positive and encouraging has its place and is good, when you're going through difficult times, if you're going through depression or anxiety, you can't just listen to something that tells you to be happy and, and that, that's going to make you feel happy. Um, sometimes we need to be able to express what's really going on in our lives. And that's one reason I chose Psalm 42 to speak on. So we're going to get into Psalm 42 today and we're going to try to make some points about what biblical worship could be like. Not what every, you know, there should always be variety. So I want to say that up front. I'm not saying that every song should be like Psalm 42. But Psalm 42 is pretty interesting, so let's get into it. So Psalm 42, verse 1, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? So if you went to services in like the 70s and 80s, you recognize that line about the deer, right? As the deer pants for the streams of water. There's a chorus with that. That's like what the chorus is basically about. Interestingly enough, it, st like it stops borrowing from Psalm 42 pretty much after this point. But up until now, that deer drinking water, that's a really beautiful pastoral scene, right? It's very peaceful, very serene. You know, if you've ever seen a deer like at a stream, it's just beautiful. Unless you're trying to plant a garden, then the deer is like the scourge of humanity. But beyond that, deer are really pretty, and you can think about, yeah, like have a nice autumn background between, behind the stream, this deer lapping the water. It could be, even be any season, and that's beautiful, right? And so the, I understand why that became sort of the heart of that song. But it's not where Psalm 42 ends. And we can relate to that. We've been thirsty, like spiritually thirsty, like where we needed more in our lives than what we were having. We needed more of God. You can probably think of moments like that one. And this is where it goes after that. In verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. Well, men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with a multitude leading a procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. And so also we get into this, this, I, this picture of eating your tears. Like that's what you're living on. Your life has become so burdened and so troubled 
but that's what your day-to-day -day existence feels like. You know, for most Psalms, we don't know the backstory. A few we do. Like sometimes it gives us a little bit of a header. You know, this is written by David after, you know, he sinned with Bathsheba or something like that. So we do get a little backstory. But for the most part, we're guessing. So was this a time of exile for Israel? Was it a time when they were like facing oppression from their enemies, which there were numerous times in the history of Israel where that was true. Basically, from the year like seven, 700 BC in that realm, all the way up to like, you know, Jesus' time, like they were facing threats from foreign empires. It was one after another. First there were the Assyrians, then there were the Babylonians, then there were the Persians, then there were the Greeks, then they had a brief time of independence, then there were the Romans. And so it was like year after year, generation after generation, not just like a few years where you might be facing a real threat from this foreign power, but for generations. That they went into exile. Like the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, was deported by the Assyrian Empire. So we call them the lost tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah went out pretty soon after in 586. And a lot of them were taken into exile into Babylon. And again, this wasn't just for a few years. And these were lasting problems for this nation. So you can understand, like, why, if that's kind of the backdrop, why they would be feeling what they were. And look, this could all be personal as well. We don't really know. And there's probably a number of situations where you can think of tragedies that you could face, where you feel like you're wandering in the desert. And you haven't had a drink of God for years. It might not even be years, it might be days, but it still feels like that. So we don't even have to get too creative imagining what this could be. But I, I have a feeling that a lot of you can resonate with this today. And it might, even, like, it might even be one of those things that in retrospect you look at and you're like, you know, that wasn't that bad. I made it a lot bigger of a deal at the moment than it was, but it, you know, but it wasn't that bad. But look, it's your pain. And your pain is your pain. And when you're feeling it, it's hard to see anything else. And so this author of this psalm has to remember. So he remembers these good times of going to the house of God, maybe in times of pilgrimage, maybe in times of Passover, when all the Jews pretty much converged on Jerusalem and the temple, this joyful time of celebration. And he gets into verse 5. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him my Savior and my God. I really appreciate, I think it was Doug who read this psalm for us. I really appreciated the way he did that because I really feel like the author is almost talking to himself. He's having a conversation. Why are you so troubled? Why are you, why are you making such a big deal of this moment? You know God's real. You know God's there, right? And yet what are his next words after he says that, after he makes these declarations of faith that I will trust you? My soul is downcast within me. He can't deny it. And there are times when I look at Christian worship and I just feel like it's kind of choking out that honesty. That it's not allowing us to, re to be real in front of God with how hurt, with how angry we might be. And I understand why we do that. I do. Because it doesn't feel like it fits in worship. It, you know, it feels like too negative, too dark. And it doesn't feel like faith. I remember one of those trips to Argentina that we went on. I actually think it was the one we went on before we went with CBC. But we had this, uh, this um, woman who came from, who wasn't part of our church, 
um, but she knew one of the people in our church, and she was having a lot of back pain while she was there. Like, you know, if you've ever, you know, back pain is really bad, right? I mean, I don't want to rank the pains in life, but, you know, back pain is just kind of always there, hard to get comfortable. You know, she's in this foreign country and, like, trying to serve and do work, and her back's just really acting up. And so, you know, things were, they were a much more charismatic church that we were serving with. So, like, if you had something wrong with you, they were going to lay hands on you pretty much immediately. And so the pastor of the Argentina church prayed for her. He laid hands on her, and he prayed for her. And after he prayed in Spanish, so we assume, we don't really know what he said, but um, we assume it was all good stuff, uh, you know. Um, but he, he asked her, how do you feel through a translator? And she didn't want to answer because it was still hurting. And she felt like if she admitted that, it was a lack of faith. And I was like, wow. And I felt kind of bad for her in a way. Because that's a tough way to live and to walk with God. Steps deny how you're feeling. But you can't even be honest about, yeah, my back still hurts. Does God not know that? Is God like, you know, I really thought that worked. <laughs> I really thought that fixed it. Wait, you're, you're still hurting? Oh, you're making this up. Like, God's not going to be like that. God already knows. Like, what are you going to tell God about your feelings that he's not like, yeah, I'm aware. I'm aware of your pain and your hurt. But there's something cathartic about just expressing it and saying it. And I think there's something edifying to the entire church body when people are honest. You know, I do. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. But you see that this psalmist is struggling. You know, my soul is downcast with me. Therefore, I will remember you. From the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep, and the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. I was thinking about why do you have to remember something for? Why do you have to remember it? Think about the things in your life that you remember. Maybe it's someone that you lost a long time ago, a loved one. And you just try to remember the times that you had, remember their voice in your life. Why do you have to remember that for? It's not there anymore in a physical sense, right? Maybe you're remembering, like, the good times, and maybe in your marriage has become very troubled, and you're remembering, like, oh, yeah, there were these good moments we used to have. There seem few and far between now, but I can remember. Why do you have to remember for? Because it's not there anymore the way it was. Something's changed, or at least you feel like something's changed. It's not the same. That's why we remember stuff. So when the psalmist admits to having to remember these deliverances from God, the reason why he has to is because he's not seeing them unfold in his present life the way that he wants them to. That's why we have to remember. So even just saying, I remember the things that God has done, although it is an act of faith, it's also an admission. You know, it's kind of indirect admission that things aren't going so well right now. When he says, deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me, there's two different ways to read that. One, it's like you're kind of lost in the depths of God, and this is a metaphor for God's presence in your life and about thirsting for God like we saw earlier in the psalm. But it's also this vision of just being overwhelmed by all of these currents and these like waves after wave just sweeping over you. You know, in the ancient world, they had these things like these sort of primordial fears that they had, and one of them was the watery deep because water is powerful. Whenever we see a tsunami, we're reminded of that. You know, sometimes people use the tsunami or a tidal wave as some sort of metaphor for cleansing. And you're like, yeah, that's not how it works in reality at all. These are destructive. If you see, like, what's left behind after a tsunami, it's like all this rubble. It's not cleansing at all. And so I wonder if that's what the psalmist is talking about here, that he just feels 
overwhelmed in this moment. But he also acknowledges that if this is pain, if this, all these trials are coming this way, that there is a component to the act. There is a part of this that God has ordained them or put them in his life. Because that's the double-edged sword of believing that God is sovereign, isn't it? It's, you know, you have that comfort of believing that God's in control, but now you also have to sort of think about how all the different things in your life that might not be so good, why they might be there. And that can be a real challenge to process. But I think in one hand, he's trying to understand that. By, the, by day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? It's almost this intermixing between, like, I trust in God, I believe in God, he's there, he's present. Where are you, God? Why aren't you here? I can't remember the last time, like, you showed up for me. It's sort of this interplay between those two conflicting emotions. The funny thing is that I keep thinking about this is all these books in the Psalms were meant for corporate worship somehow. Like, this wasn't just, like, dear diary. This was, like, this is for the church. This is for the body of people together. This is for the congregation to think about and to meditate on. So I find that really interesting because we might think about this from an individual perspective of resonating with this, but it kind of seems kind of weird that we would just sing a song where this was happening. It doesn't seem positive and encouraging anymore, does it? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? You know, I think of people in like fourth, you know, end of stage cancer, like how the, you know, feeling just agony in their bones. You know, we've come a long way with medication and being able to comfort people, but sometimes I wonder when I read the psalm, was that sort of what he was going through, some sort of illness where he feels like death is imminent? Or is he just kind of speaking metaphorically about the way how deep this pain is, how deep it goes? Um, Think about artists, as we tend, artists tend to be a little bit uh, dramatic sometimes, right? But I still think this is honest. I think this is how he feels. Um, where is your God? His foes keep taunting him. Where is your God? And then in verse 11, why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It's almost like he's preaching a sermon to his soul. And he's saying, look, soul, let's get this together here. Um, you can put your hope in God. You can still trust in him. But it's a battle. It's a struggle. And I hope that you can see that as we read through this psalm. You know, there are some things that we want to do when people are going through hard times as Christians. We do want to encourage them. But sometimes when we encourage them, we do a, we do a job of encouragement like Job's friends did, right? If you read the book of Job, you know that Job's friends offered him no encouragement as he went through this immense suffering because they give platitudes. Like, oh, if you just trusted in God, everything would be fine. Okay, so am I, am I, was I not trusting in God? And look, there are times when we are not adequately trusting in God, but is that the reason why we're going through these things? An outsider would never know. So there are a lot of time, times when we speak as Christians into the lives of other people who are suffering, and we don't know better. Like, we need to listen. We need to keep our mouths quiet because we don't understand. Is it possible God's judging them? I don't know. You can't read through the whole entire compass of the Bible and not take away the fact that God does seem to judge people and nations. Um, so we couldn't really rule it out. But at the same time, are we the arbiters of that? Can we make that decision? Can we make that determination from the outside? No, of course not. And there are other times that we want to just give them a nice, healthy dose of perspective. Like, hey, you know, you have food. You have water. 
we have all these, you know, freedoms and rights. You live in this country where there's all these, you know, things that we can enjoy. The thing about perspective is it's really hard to receive it in a lecture from somebody else. So when I was a kid, you know, we had to eat vegetables. And I didn't like eating vegetables, like pretty much any of them. People are like, what kind of, what's your favorite vegetable? I'm like, strawberries. Like, that's not a vegetable. Well, <laughs> that's what I like. So we would do lots of things to avoid eating vegetables. We would feed the dog sometimes. I, one time, my father was like right there on the phone. And I'm sitting here at the table. I successfully fed my squash to one of my dogs, and he was none the wiser. So I was pretty impressed with that. But sometimes we would just sit there, and we would just like try to wait it out. Like maybe we can wait out our parents, and they're going to give up. Didn't usually work. But one thing they would tell us was, you know, some kids would really kill for these vegetables. And so do you think that changed my perspective? I was like, oh, these vegetables are really good. Let me eat them joyfully. No, what my mind was like, well, could we arrange some sort of trade? Because I think, like, that seems to be a win-win situation. Like, I get rid of the vegetables. They get the vegetables that they need. Everybody wins. This is great. My dad didn't think so. Um, but it's an example of, like, you can tell someone to change their perspective. It's not going to work. One thing I learned really quickly as a pastor is that when people are going through hard times, you sort of want to encourage them. But sometimes you kind of want to control their feelings, and you want to, like, make sure they don't get too angry or too sad. But I learned pretty quickly that you cannot change someone's feelings. Now, look, someone can tell you, you know, you're right. I feel great inside. But they probably don't. It's a dangerous thing to suppress your feelings. So I've heard this stated as a fact, and I think it's one of those hard things to really um, prove. Is it true or not? I've heard that the number one cause for depression is repressed anger. That people who are angry and don't express it, like, and you just kind of push it down and bury it and bury it over years, that becomes depression. But I can't tell you if that's true or not. It does check out on some levels. So I can understand why people, at least people would think it's true. But it's really dangerous to try to hide your feelings, to try to bury your feelings. You know, it's just something that you can't really do. Our feelings are our feelings. And your faith doesn't always change them right away. That working through them is a process. It takes time. And so I think as a church, like, we need space for people who are mourning. We need space for people who aren't feeling that positive an uplifting spirit today. It doesn't make them a bad Christian. It doesn't mean they're immature. It just means they're human, and they're going through something. And so I think as, a, as a congregations, we need to be careful how we deal with things like depression and anxiety. Well, have you tried praying for it? Yeah, the thought did come to my mind a few times. You know, we kind of have these patronizing questions that we ask people. And that we really need to be careful because, like, sometimes we go through and we're like, oh, that's why it was so hard for them. This is no joke. Um, so I think we need to give people space. And there are several different ways that we can do that. One is in the testimonies that we give. Most testimonies are of the amazing grace variety. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, and now I see. Like this before and after pictures. And those are really powerful. You know, one thing I notice about testimonies, because sometimes I would know people who were sharing the testimonies, they exaggerated. See, I didn't say they lied, but they definitely exaggerated. They exaggerated the before and after. Because I remember this one person in my church, and she, was in, and she was talking about, you know, when she came to faith, she was helping out in youth group every week. And I'm like, I run the youth group every week, and you're not there every week. I mean, it's, I wasn't trying to quibble. or you know, I, I didn't 
say anything about this, but I was like, why, why did you say that you were there every week? Like, why not be more honest and say, I try to? This is something I want to do, but it's hard. And why does that matter? Because if you're out there listening, and you're hearing somebody say, yeah, I, you know, I came to Jesus, and I've been joyful ever since. So if you're sitting out there and you're listening to that, you're like, am I doing it wrong? <laughs> like, what's going on? I don't feel joyful all the time. Am I not a real Christian? So I think it's really dangerous when we just have these perfect pictures of what Christians should look like and how they should act. Now, of course, there are expectations and there are standards. I'm not saying they're not. But as Christians, we need to be really careful because, you know, that smiling, happy Christian is sort of the stereotype. And there will be plenty of times in our lives where we're not smiling and happy Christians. That doesn't mean we're not Christians. It doesn't mean that we're failing God or that he's failing us. It means we're going through a process at the moment. And, you know, we often believe that's going to result in growth, and it's going to be a blessing to us somehow in the end because of the grace of God. But in the moment, it does not feel like that. You know, so I, I shared with you how I had a hard time getting into Christian music. So when I was in 11th grade, I heard the song on the radio. It was actually just main, maybe MTV, when they actually played music. Um, and I was watching, the, there was this video by this band called Jars of Clay. So now they're like, a, you know, this kind of like pretty big, well-known Christian band. Um, but they had this song called Flood. And the song Flood was not like a, it was a prayer. I'm going to bring up the lyrics here because I don't remember them all. But a lot of them do stick with me, but then I have to sing it. And you don't want me to sing it. But that's how I remember them. And this song went like this, rain, rain on my face. It hasn't stopped raining for days. My world is a flood. Slowly I become one with the mud, which really does remind me of a psalm. Not this one, but there's another psalm about being sort of stuck in the mud. But if I can't swim after 40 days and my mind is crushed by the crashing waves, lift me up so high that I cannot fall. Lift me up when I'm falling. Lift me up when I'm weak and dying. Lift me up. I need you to hold me. Lift me up and keep me from drowning again. And it kind of goes on like that. And it's a prayer, right? Like, this is more of a prayer than anything else. And he's not saying, well, now everything's great and the rain's gone away. He's asking for God to come through for him. But the song never really resolves. It doesn't say, now I'm super happy all the time. And I felt like when I heard this song that there was room for that song for me, room in that song for me, and that I could relate to this. Um, because it was a prayer, and it was this kind of statement of faith like, all prayers are a statement of faith in a sense that we think that God is listening and can help us and wants to help us. All prayer is a step of faith, right? But I sort of felt it with this, that he was asking for God to come through for him. And so in a song like that, I felt like there's a place for me in all my pain and all my angst and all these things that, you know, maybe years from now I'll look back and think, oh, that was something funny that happened to me. But right now it doesn't feel so funny. In a song like that, I, I, could, I, could, I could sort of explain like, I could sing it with authenticity in the way that I felt. And it wasn't even intended to be a church song or anything like that, but it's supposed to be an expression of what it is like sometimes as a Christian. And so I do think we need more songs like that, more songs that do allow for those times when we're struggling and suffering. And we need to, from in our conversation, be willing to listen to people and not just be willing to le try to lecture them out of their pain and their sorrow, but be willing to listen to them and just like help them. Because most times when people find that perspective, I do think perspective is important, but most people, they find it through experience. And sometimes they just listen to somebody else, and they listen to somebody else speak, and it clicks. Not because someone was talking down to them or telling them how they should feel, but just because in that moment, spirit happened or something worked. 
and they got it. And they're like, oh, this thing that I'm going through, it's, it's rough, but it's not that bad. Sometimes we need that. And sometimes what we're going through is way beyond that. A little perspective is not even going to necessarily work right away. But a lot of times we, in our grief, as we process that grief and that pain, we do find healing. But when we live in a community that allows for that, it helps that grieving process. It takes the pressure off. It gives people space to feel what they're feeling without shame, that they can be angry, that they can be sad, and that this is not like uh, aberration from the Christian experience. It's part of it. Because God is angry sometimes. God is sad sometimes. Look at the life of Jesus. How many times did he weep? How many times was he overcome by grief? The grave of Lazarus. I always go into that one because he knew Lazarus was going to rise again. He knew what he was going to do, and he still wept. Sometimes we know that the end, we know what the end is. We believe the end is good, but we still grieve, we still mourn. So let's, as a community, allow for people to do that in peace, listening to them, encouraging them, but not overwhelming them. Letting them feel what they feel and just walking with them through that. Because that's a, a, the other piece of it. Sometimes we just want to get them out of their sorrow. We don't want to stay there with them. We want them to be happy again. Because then we can be happy again. We don't have to think about these things that maybe bother us, that we don't understand why they're happening. And so this is a powerful thing for us to be able to do for each other. So I pray that you guys can do that for one another, and the testimonies that you give, and the songs that you sing, and the conversations that you have, and that you can allow people to find their way out of the deep, out of the mud, into the loving arms of Christ.